Welcome back to another episode of The Conversational. Today, I am here with David Payne. David has an amazing, amazing background. I know I say this a lot because I feel very blessed to have super amazing people on my podcast, but his background is one that I have, um, I, I'm in, in awe of and haven't seen at all before. So let me back up to his first sort of quote unquote, you know, career resume um, position. He was the assistant U.S. attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., so right away, of course, you pay attention and I want to be sure that I'm, you know, not doing anything wrong. Um, then he became the VP of Business Affairs and the team counsel in Atlanta for three of their teams, the Braves, the Hawks, and the Thrashers, as well as being the legal officer for Turner Sports. So being a big sports aficionado, I loved that. He was then SVP and GM of CNN Sports Illustrated. So I think we'll, we'll talk. I probably ran into him then. I was doing a lot of work for a mutual friend of ours, probably Mark Ford at Sports Illustrated and Time Inc. He went on to be SVP and GM of CNN.com and the SVP of Business Ops and Development. He was then president and CEO of Short Tail Media, which was a digital video advertising technology company. Then was the chief product officer and the chief digital officer, two different positions while he was at Gannett, which is, as you probably know, the, uh, the owner of USA Today. And finally, he now is the president and executive producer for Rainstream Media, where they have a smash hit podcast, one that I, it's right in my sweet spot of the kinds of content I love to both watch and stream which is kind of in the, in the vein of, we'll chat about it, David, kind of the making a murderer kind of vein. But his podcast is called Somebody Somewhere. And the idea there is, uh, and we'll get into it, is a bit of a cold case uh, investigative um, podcast. So very exciting. He's had two seasons so far and uh, excited to have you here streaming in from from Seattle we are in the midst we're recording this in the midst of the covid so it's my very first ever podcast not being done face to face but being done video to video across the country so welcome david thanks for being here thank you for having me and i, I have to correct you right off the bat because you that? you you left out one thing which is <laughs> my my current occupation is hairstylist <laughs> i i took I took the clippers to my hair today, so it's a blessing that you cannot see me for this podcast. There's a big chunk out of the left side of my head. You weren't uh, drinking first, were you? That's no, it's early. It's okay. early here. It's yeah, well, Pacific Coast time. But yes, I, I, no, it's COVID. Nobody knows. So you no, know. nobody knows. I figured now is the time. And it, it's as I did it, I said it's it's really a proper metaphor for this uh, discussion because I thought, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> And yeah, thank God you can't see me right now. The worst could happen is you could take a picture of us. That's okay. Yeah. We're all in our um, our least glamorous, um, I think, physical beings uh, over these past couple of weeks. God help us when we all have to go back. I'm I'm very curious. Either people will be they'll have forgotten what it is to to look great, you know, great again, or they'll be just so excited to be putting on all their fancy duds that everybody will go back. The, the whole business casual thing will have gone away to back to formal because people will be excited to put real clothes on again. I can't tell which. We'll have to see, I guess. Well, the former is certainly uh, Seattle every day. Well, yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> so true. Nobody gives a crap out here in Seattle about what you wear or how you look, that's for sure. So uh, welcome, welcome to the world. Right, welcome. Welcome to Seattle, world. Yeah, the grunge every day, right? <laughs> I love every it. Day. Every day. Is you, grunge. Can, 
wear your pajamas to work. <laughs> so um, I always love to start off these podcasts because, you know, for me, these are really about the backstory of my guests. Most of my guests are successful in some vein and, and their successes are well known or well researched, but their backstory is not so much. And um, my guess is you've got a tremendous backstory. So where were you, where were you born? Where were your parents? Like how many brothers and sisters? Give me a little bit of the early days. Sure. Um, I was born in Iowa of all places, oh. uh, which is a strange place to be born. And I had, had not been back there until earlier this year when I was knocking on doors for Joe Biden, uh, which I did in, in January. But um, I spent a very little time, very little time in Iowa. My father was a med student there. Um, with at the University of Iowa. My mother was a homemaker. Um, I eventually had uh, three brothers. Uh, there were only two of us then there. And I'm told, I'm the second oldest. Okay. I'm the second oldest. And I'm told that it was, uh, by, my, by my mother, it was a very difficult time. You know, I, I think, you know, back in those days, they probably made $50 a week kind of thing. And it was cold and they had moved from Texas and didn't have the right clothing. Um, so I, I, it was a very uh, inauspicious beginning in Iowa. <clears throat> we later, um, and by later, a year later, uh, ended up moving to Washington, D.C., uh, where my father was uh, in the Army as a doctor and then uh, eventually uh, be, you know, had his own practice in Washington, D.C. How old were you when you guys moved there? Yeah, I, one you were Two one. Years. Oh, so you yeah, were yeah. born. Yeah. Oh, you literally didn't spend any time in Iowa. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. so I'm, so I'm, I, I consider myself a native Washingtonian. I've spent most of my life in uh, either Washington, Atlanta, uh, are the are the two primary spots. Okay, got it. Well, so then your your mom being a housemaker, your dad, um, it, it was a physician. Sounds like yes. And yes. What kind of physician was he? He was an OBGYN. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay, yeah. babies in the world. That's great. Um, that we, by the way, no, you know, little segue. They're expecting a big baby boom from this as well. We'll have to see how that turns out. I'm sure he's he's not practicing any longer. No, he is. He is. He has passed away. Oh. Uh, it's been it's been a long time, and 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 that actually, I'm sure we'll get to it. Is kind of one of those moments that you talked about. You know, that is a oh, shit um, moments. Yeah, holy shit, or just just a marker in my life that um, uh, certainly defined a lot of who I am and where I am. Well, talk about that. So, what was um, what, what were your parents like, and and how what was that influence like growing up? Sure. I, I mean, I'll, let me back up a little bit to kind of set the table for it. Um, as I mentioned, I have three brothers: one one older and two younger. Uh, we were a family of four living in Washington, D.C. My father was a physician. My, my mother was, you know, truly the, you know, the, the, the grade A homemaker, president of the PTA, mm -hmm. uh, the one who really took care of us while my father, frankly, worked all the time. Uh, he was, because he was an OBGYN, his hours were, you know, literally 24-7. Yeah. So my, so my, um, whenever they want to, right? Yeah, whenever they want to. And so my memories of, uh, of my youth, as it were, were, you know, my father was largely 
um, working all the time and my mother was taking care of us and uh, with four boys, we just played sports all the time. And that's where you mentioned some of my sports background and how, how I ended up in sports. I just love sports. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sports guy. I'm a gym, gym rat. Uh, but we grew up, we had a very uh, uh, normal, nice, uh, uh, upper middle class um, up, upbringing. Uh, but then things got very uh, uh, tense with my parents as we were growing up. It was, um, they had uh, considerable, considerable amounts of, um, you know, te- uh, tension in the, in the houses. I, I, I'm not going to go into too much detail about it, but at one point, uh, in the back and forth, uh, it got very violent and we had to, you know, literally pick up in the middle of the night and leave our house. And that set off uh, a set of, uh, eventually my parents got divorced. Uh, eventually, you know, the family kind of scattered. We all scattered to different places. My best friend took me in uh, to his house um, and so forth. Uh, I would say stuff started hitting the fan when I was 14 and 15 and really, you know, kind of got bad at 16. Uh, it's probably, probably that, that range. Uh, and, you know, like, like everybody who's in any kind of situation, you only know what you know is what I always say. It seemed, I mean, that was my life and that's how it was. And, you know, we picked up and left the house and, uh, there we were. Uh, and, and we, you know, you survive, you survive those things. And then uh, we kind of got our life back together. Things kind of settled down after uh, the divorce that my parents finally finalized. I went off to college uh, to Duke University for my first year. Uh, and then that summer, my father took his life. And uh, so I was 18 when that happened. And I think, and I think that was, um, as I mentioned, kind of a defining uh, moment for me because I really had to. I, I had really grown up quickly as soon as you know we we left the house, uh, but I really had to grow up quickly uh, when that happened, mm-hmm. and uh, it kind of it kind of set the course for a lot of things in my life, uh, including why I went to law school and so forth. Oh, how um, how was the rest of your family? With I, I, I imagine that was a holy shit moment for for all of you. Um, was it, did everybody react equally? Um, as, that's a good that's a good question. I don't know. Um, you know, my younger brothers were probably twelve and thirteen. Actually, they're three years behind. So fifteen, sorry, fifteen and twelve. That would have been the right. Um, I can do math. See. Uh, <laughs> But you know, young. I don't know if you have brothers. We don't. Yeah, we one, don't. <laughs> one, I've got a good up. Yeah, brothers don't talk a lot about stuff that uh, you know is that deep and profound. But um, everybody, everybody made their way. Everybody survived. Everybody uh, is uh, very accomplished at what they do, and um, I think it hardened. You know, I I think what happens with when you have kind of childhood trauma, it it steals you to other things that happen in life where things just don't seem like they're such a big deal. Yeah. And uh, it really is a blessing uh, to have those things happen in your life. You don't know it at the time, but um, it, it, it makes your outlook uh, change. Yeah. 
Absolutely. It does. It's a perspective. It's a perspective. It's a holy shit moment for sure, but it's also a perspective um, bringer, something that stays with you, I'm sure, always. How? So you went off to college, obviously, you know, kind of right in the, I would guess that you started college or you, you said you were, you had just started college when this happened. Right. So that's it. Right. You were already in a major kind of transition period in your life when that was occurring. How did you, did you know that you wanted to pursue law um, when you went or did this, was there a tipping point for you on that? Yeah, there was a, there was a tipping point. It was really interesting the, the, the best friend that I had whose uh, family I went to stay with when our family kind of broke up uh, was a lawyer and he was actually our family lawyer. And when my father passed away, uh, there was a very set of, uh, there was a set of strange dynamics that happened. One, he had just gotten remarried. Um, Just as a side note, uh, an interesting footnote for people of our generation. He married uh, Jessica Savage. Remember Jessica Savage? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And uh, he had just gotten remarried to her. And she, of course, you know, died about a year after after he did. Um, But there was, uh, as you might imagine, uh, the fighting still continued uh, post his death. And there were lawsuits uh, against his, uh, you know, people came out of the woodwork to try to get money out of his medical practice. Um, There was uh, bad blood between uh, Jessica Savage and, you know, our family. There was bad blood in other places with the executor. And, and as a result of that, everything was being litigated. Uh, meanwhile, we had no income and no, um, you know, means to pay the bills and so forth. Mm, yeah. uh, and so really that, uh, watching that happen or being in the middle of that as it happened, um, I said, you know, I don't want this to ever happen to me or my family again. Uh, you know, it seems like if you get a law degree, you can protect yourself from some of this stuff. And that actually was a, a really kind of a driving force for me going to law school. Ah, interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So I was wondering if there was, I, um, and it makes sense now that you had lived with somebody who was an attorney, but usually it's an influence of some sort typically, but so you, so you went through and you, you stayed, if I look back, I, I'm not looking at your, um, your, your resume now, but you were a, you were a Duke undergrad. Did you get your law degree there as well? Yeah, I ended up getting my law degree there. Uh, I, the, the bio, I think you're looking at, um, thank God doesn't go all the way back to those <laughs> first jobs. I, I felt, I felt old enough as you read off the things I had do. done. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I went to, I went to Duke undergrad. I was, we were able to kind of figure it out from year to year and thank God it was much more affordable back then. I, it's one of, one of the biggest problems right now, of course, is how expensive college is, but we figured it out. I got through college and I started my career in, um, television journalism, like a number of people on your podcast that I've listened to, uh, in local TV. But then I uh, decided I was going to go back to law school. I went one year to BU and then ended up transferring back to Duke for, uh, to finish the last two years, where um, not surprisingly, my, the, the woman I had met, who is now my wife of 30 years, was at Duke Law School. So there was a little oh. bit of a draw. Interesting. Is, uh, so does your wife still practice? She works for Amazon. Ah. She's a deal maker for Amazon. She acquires... Um, 
the channels on Amazon Prime Video. So she's a recovering lawyer too. We both haven't been practicing law for about 20 years. And um, interesting. Yeah, but you kind of, you know, but what's interesting to me about listening, this is my favorite, you know, armchair psychiatrist thing, which clearly is just an armchair practice, is, um, is you know, you, you kind of think when you tie these knots of the journalism, um, you know, your love of sports, I mean, it's littered throughout your background all the way through even to having worked at Gannett, you know, I mean, like, you know, yeah. That's been fine to say, but it's you know you're still you're still tied in sort of with the storytelling combination of investigative journalism and then kind of bringing you where you are today. What? But before we get to because I'm I'm dying to go and talk to you a bit about you know your your current um, podcast and the series of what you're doing. But I I I don't want to skip over because I know there's going to be some sort of interesting moments that had that led you on your way. So you when you graduated um, with your law degree, so done some journalism, went back, graduated with your law degree, did you leave there immediately and then go, go to, um, you know, to go to the, the Turner Sports Avenue? So when I got out of law school, uh, like, like all of us, uh, I had a little bit of debt, as you might imagine. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I went into private practice for two years uh, at a firm called Gibson Dunn and Crutcher in Washington D.C., which was uh, enough to enough to let me know that I didn't really want to be a lawyer, <laughs> even though I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, although, I, uh, although I have to, I almost have to retract that statement as I say it because you you may or may not be surprised to know that I've just taken another bar after 30 years. I took the California bar last summer, and uh, I. It looks like I'm going to take the Washington State Bar in uh, three months. <laughs> Why? So, I know you took it last summer because we talked about doing this yeah. podcast last summer, and you were in the midst of studying for the bar, and you know it wasn't a good. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, yeah. I'm, I, I'm basically I'm coming I'm coming back around. It's it you know life really truly is this journey, and you know nobody really has any idea which which way they're going. Uh, I felt kind of pulled back into it uh, when I was doing the podcast uh, for reasons we can talk about when we get to the podcast. But um, uh, I, th- I have things that are left undone and I think I'm, I'm really interested. This is the podcast that pulled me back into the courthouse and it pulled me back into issues around criminal justice and equality and, yeah. how people are treated and I have some unfinished business that I want to attend to. And so I'm, I'm finding myself uh, re-engaging with the legal system again after all these years. Amazing. So, okay. So we'll, so let's talk a little bit about sports because then I do want to get right back up. Yes. To present time. How did you get to Turner sports then? So you, after you had your the private practice for a couple of years, what was so- so I went to private practice, and then uh, you mentioned off the top, I, I joined the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C., which was my first escape from uh, private practice. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get a job there where I prosecuted criminal cases. And I, I love that job. I mean, it was uh, a chance to wear the white hat. I, I was so young. I was so naive. I look back on it and... Still? Um, still? What's that? Very idealistic too, as well. I think I think very idealistic, and um, you know, I was just looking back at a case that I prosecuted, uh, or actually, I, I didn't prosecute it, but I should say it a better way: a case I investigated. It was a police shooting 
that happened, um, you know, gosh, this is 30 years ago. And I was reading, I had like a 80 page memo, grand jury investigation, an 80 page memo that outlined the reasons why we shouldn't prosecute that crime. And as I read it, I was like, you know, if this had happened today, you know, I would have been in such a different place and such a different uh, frame of frame of reference to uh, assess the credibility of the witnesses. So, you know, for instance, I think I took, you know, whole slate, the statements of the police officer. Mm-hmm. Now, it, they seem to be backed up by the evidence and, and I, I wouldn't make a different conclusion. But I also think, you know, with time and experience and judgment and times changing, mm-hmm. you really see things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, Was there a particular case outside of that one that really stuck with you during your time there? I, don't, I wouldn't say a particular case, but I would say one of the things that jumped out at me when I was, I, we moved. So I had, a, I was looking back through all these old folders and everything, <laughs> you know, that was in the middle of the crack academic, uh, uh, crack yeah. e- epidemic in Washington, DC. We were having, and, and I don't know if you remember the sentencing guidelines that were passed at that time in Congress and everybody wanted to be tough on crime and we were like smack dab in the middle of prosecuting people and throwing them away for 30 years for not a whole lot of, you know, not a whole lot of drugs. Is this the dis- 90s, David? This- yeah, this was exactly the early 90s. Yeah. And so even, even that, and it's one of the areas I'm really kind of interested in now in kind of the next chapter of my career is kind of seeing what we can do to uh, unravel the wrongs of the nineties. Because it just, it's so, you know, we get older and wiser and you, you see, you see the impact of these things that happen. And you, you know, I was just a foot soldier in that, in that war. Um, But I, I feel, I feel like there's work to be done to correct those things. Yeah. Yeah, well, you can tell. I mean, we'll we'll move forward. Um, you know, I keep I keep trying to dra- drag you into the, your sports thing. <laughs> Let's we'll go to sports. Screaming, but you can see your. I, I'm going to circle back because I made a note, a footnote here about. You know, I didn't I didn't mention it in your bio. You, I mean, you're on boards of directors and council on call, but you're you're doing quite a bit for. It feels like those whether it's homeless or whether it's, which is of course the focus of your, your second season of your podcast, but also immigrants and just kind of hearing you speak now about it, it, it all very much makes sense. And, and I'm very curious again, as we get towards the end and the sort of coming full circle home again, but okay, sports, I'm not letting sports. You Let's get into sports. sports. Yes. Yeah. So uh, the way, so I left uh, the U S attorney's office in 1993 and I joined Turner broadcasting. And what I, what I tell people uh, who ask me, well, how did you get into that sports thing? Um, I picked a company, Turner Broadcasting, that had sports, had all the things I was really interested in and passionate about. And then I figured out how to get my foot in the door. And I didn't go straight into the sports group. I joined the legal department and I took a job uh, in the one space they had open, which was this very unglamorous uh, copy, I think they called it the copyright lawyer. And I, I didn't know shit about copyright, but I, I, 
Yeah, I picked up. I it could be a, it could be a book. I picked up the uh, U.S. code for uh, U.S. copyright code and read it, you know, front and back, and studied it and looked up cases and came in and, and got a job. And but but my reason for for uh, joining Turner was the sports group and what I wanted to do. So uh, I always counsel people: just get in where you can, and then the next step. Uh, of, of the nefarious plan to do what you want to do in life is to volunteer. Mm-hmm. So I started, um, there was a guy who was the sports lawyer who, who um, didn't like to do all the dirty work. He just kind of wanted to be the sports lawyer. And he's a good friend of mine, but uh, th- th- there was a lot of stuff that was beneath him. And I would volunteer to do all the shitty work. And so, uh, you know, I, I think the, the one that always stood out at me uh, where I felt I'd hit my low when was when I was doing the urinal sign contracts for uh, <laughs> the Omni. You know, this the signage that's over the urinals. That's you know, it's important that we don't it's, get it's you don't important want to work. Those, you know, you know, you, know yeah. you want to keep eyes up, eyes up yep. at all time. Yep. You got to have good signage in the bathrooms at, at the Omni now, the Phillips Arena. But that was the kind of stuff I would do. I do all the independent contractor agreements and so forth. And when that uh, attorney moved on to a business role. Uh, I was there, ready to step in and take his job. And this was the the late nineties, and it, I couldn't have had a I couldn't have been luckier in the timing that uh, we had to be a sports lawyer at Turner Broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Um, we we won a World Series. That was that was a great start. We lost a whole bunch of others after that, of course. Uh, but we also acquired an NHL expansion team. So being part of the kind of the bottoms up uh, work to do that, we, we renovated or built multiple stadiums, including Phillips Arena, Turner Field, uh, the Disney Sports Complex where the Braves play, uh, spring training, practice facility for the Thrashers, the, the whole nine yards. So it was a heady time. It was a, uh, it was a, a bullish time uh, to be in that kind of business. Yeah, great. It's, it's so fun. And I, again, I, my background, you know, I love sports too, but when I was at Chrysler, I had, you know, $2 billion media budget. So I was, I knew all, I, you know, I mean, sports was a big, big platform for us in our messaging and spent a lot of time probably around, I, you know, I'm always surprised I haven't crossed paths, but you talk about like hockey and Gary Bettman, and there was so much activity and so much expansion of sports, you know, and, and the and the stadiums, to your point, there was, there was like a boom um, in the 90s, it felt like, for stadiums and, you know, the reconstruction. It was really, it was an exciting time. How yeah, did, it really was. How did you move? Okay, so then you were there. It makes total sense. You went to the, the CNNSI.com. We'll have to talk about it. We have mutual people there as well from our, our backgrounds, but after you left CNN, what was the, what, it seems like a fun, like a fun job. Did you, what, what was the impetus to leave and go, it looks like you started, or I don't know with short tail media, did you start that company or did you? I did. Went, you did. What, I did. So what was the impetus that pushed you that way? So the thing that I realized, so I, I ran uh, both CNN, CNN, excuse me, CNNSI.com and CNN.com for eight years. And the thing that I um, struggled with day in and day out, uh, and is still a problem today, was trying to build a digital business that was sustainable and that was um, principally ad supported, really had a little subscription 
subscription and losing revenue on top. But, um, you know, these businesses, because of the way they ground, uh, were destined to be free exported businesses. Uh, and, and I had a real, I, I had a real problem with that because I couldn't figure out how to do it. <laughs> uh, it's not like, you know, nobody really could. I mean, I'm not having, I don't have a messiah uh, complex, but I, I spent a lot of time and energy in uh, many years of my life trying to figure out how to make these things meaningful businesses because it was obvious that everything was headed digitally. And then it was obvious that everything was going to be headed to these phones. And as you try to keep making this ad model work for these platforms, it was obvious it wasn't going to work. And when I started Short Tail, um, it came out of a board meeting of the Online Publishers Association, which Pam Horan, who you know, was the the head of at that time, Peter's uh, spouse. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a professor who came in from Harvard. Uh, business school who was advising all the big media companies what to do given this this problem in the ecosystem and and one of the biggest challenges we had was you know google it was google yahoo aol can't remember who the fourth was there's one other big one you probably can remind me um Uh, google yahoo aol this is before facebook even oh oh it was it was the big portals remember the big portals they were taking all the ad dollars. Yep. And this, this Harvard professor, uh, Rep, Jeff uh, Rappaport, came in and said, you know, you guys really ought to band together, you big publishers, Disney, you know, Weather Channel, uh, CNN. You guys should really band together and so, you, so that when you can't sell your ad inventory, you pool it into essentially an ad network and it'll be a premium ad network and it, all the money won't flow downstream to ad.com and some of these other bottom feeders. And I thought that was such a good idea and so astute that um, when they said, yeah, we should really do that. I decided to leap out of the, out of the womb and do that uh, (laughs) for the industry. This was now three months before the, the September 2008 crash. And so you know, it feels a lot, like today where you've got all these great plans, you've got all these great ideas, and then, you know, the, the whole landscape shifts. Yeah. Uh, but that's what, that's what we set out to do at Short Tail was to try to coalesce the industry, the publishing industry, at least around a way to uh, clear ad inventory that wasn't so detrimental to the health of those businesses. So then did you get on um, Gannett's radar then in, in terms of did they come after you to go pull you over there? Yeah, I don't know if they knew about it. They were a client. Um, I'm not sure uh, up, upstairs knew about it, but I, I, it was a traditional recruiter reach out kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It seems because it makes sense, you know, that there's those connective tissues make sense, especially because it, you were, you know, chief digital officer over there and chief product officer really helping them probably leverage what you had just learned and figured out. Um, what, yeah. how long were you at, uh, Gannett? Uh, Gannett, Gannett. Okay, it's a second. As we say, right. yes. or, or Gannett slash USA Today. Yes, Today. right, everybody knows it is USA Yeah. So what, so what, how long were you there? Uh, I joined there in uh, 2011 and left in, in early 2016, a little over four years. And why, so, and is that when you left and, and started your, this mainstream media 
Yes. So, uh, as I mentioned, my wife works at Amazon. Yeah. She was. Uh, we took a year off and kind of traveled the world. We both had left uh, big companies and, uh, you know, taking the proverbial package as people our age do when right. they want to get rid of uh, weight when mergers mergers happen. Uh, right. Uh, it was great. What's that? We have kids as well. Yes. Yes, we have kids. Yeah. Have so kids. it was it was a good time. Timing. It was a great. Me. It was a great time and. Uh, but then she was getting recruited by uh, Amazon to come lead their video content um, acquisition group. They were going to create kind of a live streaming service akin to YouTube mm-hmm. um, uh, for channels. And so, you know, they just kept making her greater and greater offers to come. And we said, well, why not Seattle? Yes. And so that's what, that's what pulled us out here. Oh, got it. And so you've been out there since since 16 yeah. or 17? 17. 17. 17. Yeah. Okay. And so then you started Rainstream. Did you just start it? Be- why? So what was, give me a little back. How did that Yeah. Happen? Well, uh, so you'll appreciate this. I think uh, anybody that's in our, in our uh, age bracket will appreciate this. When I got out here and started looking for media jobs, um, <laughs> there weren't a lot of good fits. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's just not a lot of media out here, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I had another one of those moments of, well, why not? You know, why not start my own? Why not get into a a format that I'm interested in? And I was inspired, as many people were, by the Serial podcast Mm -hmm. and that investigative thing. And gosh, you know, you talk about, you know, checking a lot of boxes or or pulling a lot of threads (laughs) through in my life. Um, I'd done investigations as a, as a prosecutor. Um, I had been involved with and failed miserably at podcasts at CNN in the early days because we couldn't figure out what the right format was. And then I saw what Serial did. And my epiphany there was that format was not meant to do what we were trying to do with it at CNN, which was to take like clips of headline news or Anderson Cooper or whatever it was and, and put them on an audio format, that format was much more intimate and it lent itself to a more of a diary format. And so for journalists, I think this was a real breakthrough where it, it no longer is about third person storytelling. It's about first person storytelling. So if you listen to Sarah Koenig, what she says is, I think, I feel, I wonder, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I, 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 and that's, that's a, uh, so I kind of pieced those together and said, you know, there, I'd like to try this format. I didn't know anything about it, but you know, like my haircut, what, what's the worst that could happen? Um, and, uh, and I, I, there was a friend of mine who I'd worked with at CNN who was out here, who had just left a job running production for Vulcan. Uh, she was trying to figure out what she wanted to do next. And, uh, I called her up one day and said, I want to do a podcast let's find a cold case, let's go after it. And the case we found was perfect. Uh, we started asking around and, you know, to try to find a cold case. And, and this one acquaintance that I had met through, through my many interviews said, you know, Tom Wales. Yeah. I was wondering yeah, if he was from your yeah. Okay. So this, this friend said, uh, there's a case here in Seattle. that's really famous. It's never been solved. It's the murder of a federal prosecutor. And I had remembered, I mean, I, it was like 
this story that was tucked away way deep in my memory. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got connected with uh, the, the, the man's name was Tom Wales. He was an assistant United States attorney who was murdered in 2001. Somebody walked up to his daylight basement window and shot him through the window. Uh, it's never been solved. It, is, it turns out it's the most fascinating case most people have never heard of. Um, and we just kind of lucked into it. And, and so season one is about our investigation. And I say ours because it's, I think, I wonder, I feel uh, into this story. And we, um, we went really deep. We spent uh, over a year when it's all said and done, going across the country, chasing leads, uh, talking to people, uncovering all sorts of documents. And it's a weird thing to say that they're documents in a murder case, but you'll, if you listen to the whole series, you'll understand. Um, and it, it's been fascinating. Did you, do you feel, so at, at the end, and I, cause I, I don't want to, I want people to go and listen to it because it's this. And then I want to talk about season two, which is really something I, um, but do you, after you finish investigating, even though it's quote unquote unsolved, do you feel like, you do you feel satisfied that you feel you know who it was or how it happened or are you left equally as i'm just personally you don't have to tell yes, me yes yes um it's a it's a tricky thing as you might imagine um how how we talk about it because um i'll start with the premise saying that i don't think anyone will ever be prosecuted for this case mm-hmm. and the reason i say that you know, ab- absent somebody coming in and confessing and bringing forward, you know, the murder weapon um, that they've had in their basement or something. Um, this case has been investigated for uh, what almost 19 years now. It has generated three times as many documents at the FBI than the Enron investigation. Wow, <laughs> that's crazy! Oh my so, god. If you can think about just room, rooms, multiple rooms of documents, uh, FBI 301s and uh, interviews and tapes and uh, license plate, uh, you know, records and on and on and on uh, in this room, there is reasonable doubt in that room. Any any attorney will skewer that case. Mm-hmm. Um, the FBI has. Uh, been has zeroed in on one primary suspect that they think did it and they've essentially tried to find a way to convince themselves that or find the evidence is a better way to say that find the evidence to prove it mm-hmm. we don't think uh we think they're on the wrong track mm. and you know it, it seems to us and there's there's some evidence that we uncovered that suggests a much stronger motive for murder than the one that they have posited hmm. interesting see that's why i just was curious because there's got to be a, you know for you to keep on going it's got to be both for i mean personally for you and then obviously for your audience you know interesting exciting you know kind of get you up every morning type of work and so in some of these cases i'm sure it would be even more satisfying if you could actually bring a cold clay cold case to conclusion but even in situations like this where just the way that our legal system works to your point sometimes more information is not better because it creates those opportunities to you know unless it's a unless it's a confession to your point 
where, you know, do you feel it, it was there enough there? It was like, okay, it's, it might, you don't think it'll ever be solved or, or closed, you know, did that, does that, is that frustrating ever for you? Or was it just, is it, was it just exciting and compelling enough? It was like, nope, we're going to do more and more of these. I think every time we find, you know, a new piece of information or a new lead, it's exhilarating. I mean, and you just want to, you want to chase it down and find out what is that about? Uh, it's just it's so curious, this case and, and what's happened. Um, so it, it never was frustrating. Um, it is frustrating that they won't necessarily listen or don't appear to be listening to, I know they listen to the podcast, but listen mm-hmm. to the directions that we have uh, pointed. <laughs> we have pointed. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, it's, I think that's what's a real, what's really special about it is that it's not only your, your expertise, look, as a, as a legal professional, as a, an investigative, um, you know, journalist, all those things kind of, to your point, the thread coming home, that's one thing, but then being able to put it together in a way in these short snippets. So it's really consumable. So you're keeping the listener on the edge of their seat. I mean, that's the trick, right? That's why, you know, I think some of these other, you know, TV, like the, the streaming programs, the making of murderer and, you know, some of those, even gosh, even Joe Exotic these days, holy cow, you know, some of these kinds of things, it just, it, it's a, it's an art form to be able to take those types of um, details and make it into a compelling, listenable, consumable conversation. Is that, is that your doing? Is that Jody's? How do you guys work together to make that happen? Um, we write it, uh, and and I, I'm the I'm the writer of the show. Jody's uh, greatest strength is that she gets people to talk. Mm. She's we call her the human can opener. Uh, so a lot of a lot of the interviewers that uh, or the interviews that you'll hear on the show, uh, you'll hear her a lot in there because uh, if it was just me going in there and asking somebody about what they did and who they talked to and what happened, uh, it would not nearly be as compelling. Uh, and then you know we we produce it and we sit down and we we work over every you know paragraph and every music cue and. Uh, both of us are type A perfectionists. And so hopefully that's reflected in the work. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, so, and then I want to kind of go to season two. How did you decide um, on the case, the the jungle case, which, I, you know, I've been to the area. I took my kids there. My parents lived in Seattle. Wow. To go and I took them, we were walking around and, you know, underneath the bridge and, you know, kind of stumbled upon it by accident. We were just exploring the city so I, you know, the visual of it, and I knew exactly where this was. Um, you do you want to? I don't want to. You know, I don't want to give it away. But do you want to set it up because it's sure it's fascinating, and I'm curious too how you chose it and what compelled you towards it. Well, we started looking for another case, and um, and we had been spending a lot of time down at the courthouses here digging up documents on the Tom Wales case, and like anything, I just started asking questions about were there any interesting trials going on, what's happening here? And there was a trial going on down in Kent, which is about 40 miles south of Seattle, maybe maybe not 40 miles, 40 minutes, 20 miles by with the traffic. Um, and we were they were mid-trial on the first trial of these two teenage brothers who had been accused of a, of a multiple homicide, basically um, going into the jungle with another five to eight people, 
uh, and shooting up the encampment of a drug dealer and stealing his stuff. That was the that was the basic core allegation. And, and of course, like everything, uh, it's always more complicated than the the, the top line report. Um, so I started for people listening is a homeless encampment, if you will, right? It's yes. rabbit for people. Yeah, listening. Okay, who don't know what the jungle yeah. is? Seattle. Yep. Okay. Any, any, anybody on the West Coast has seen their own version of the jungle. It's mm-hmm. the area of, the, of town where you don't want to go in. Um, it's very uh, highly regulated. There's a high, um, uh, there's a lot of uh, drug consumption, drug dealing, uh, and the necessary enforcement around that. Um, so anyway, I stumbled into this trial. Jody was traveling at the time, and I said, you got to come back and you know, I found the case. I found the case. Come on back. So she came back and uh, heard the end of the end of the case, and uh, the jury hung. And that was a really shocking thing because this was a really high-profile case in Seattle when it happened. One because the homeless issue is such a big deal, and the mayor of the city had just um, literally the night of the shooting declared a state of emergency for the city of Seattle. They were asking for more money, shots ring out. Um, and so this is a high profile case. They arrest, they end up arresting these teenagers uh, and charge them with the murder. Yeah. They were like 13, 16 and 17 years old. So yes. Something yes. Like, really young. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> really young. And it, and the story was, as it came out that they were avenging a, the drug debt of a drug debt owed to their mother by the drug dealer, which on its face weird, didn't, make, right? didn't, yeah, didn't, <laughs> didn't make a lot of sense. User, right? Yeah. Okay. But, the, but the police were able to get a confession of these boys. So they videotaped confessions of the boys through an informant who went into the jungle or into their, the, the brother's mm-hmm. encampment and recorded them on this terrible video. So, that was the environment when this trial set down. Everybody thought they were going to be convicted. You know, you got confessions. They, they got the guns. They got the kids. Done, done. And the case hung. And so when it hung, uh, I was like, okay, that's the story. What's, what's behind what's going on? So we basically took it from there. We picked it up after the first trial. We go into the jungle and start tracking down the witnesses, tracking down the people, getting the backstory on what happened, uh, tying it back to these other cases that had happened in Seattle, of major drug operations that the U.S. Attorney's Office here had shut down two years prior. And we just started filling in the backstory. And of course, it went to trial again. Mm-hmm. And it hung. And we're there. And we record it. And you know, everybody knows who we are at that point. And it, and it hangs again. So we just kept following the story and it, and what came out of it really was less a story about the murder itself than it was about the people associated with uh, this, this homeless encampment and the, the culture around it and how it works and how there's, uh, you know, there's a king of the jungle who runs the jungle uh, and how the people operate within that society. And it was just this, uh, weird op- weird um, opportunity to go in and see a world that very few people go into. Yeah. Fascinating. And it's, so it is to your point, it's, it's even more than just the case itself. It's this dynamic that's sort of living in this sort of underworld space and how that's happening and how to, and, and I know you kind of going back full circle can bring, so 
first question is, is there going to be a season three? Let me just ask that. Yes. <laughs> yes. I found another case that uh, I'm super excited about. Uh, and I'm in the research phase of it. Jody um, is going to help me, even though she has uh, taken a job uh, down in Arizona. We're trying to figure that out. Um, but we're going to go, I, I'll go ahead and give away. Well, it's I'm, I'm going to hold it back. It's another, it's another murder case. It's another unsolved case. And it has incredible layers in it. Um, I'm very excited about it. When, so when do we, would we expect to be able to listen in on this one? Well, the COVID has put a little crimp on this one. It's hard to go you, investigate things and you can't leave your house. I get you that. You got it. You got yeah. it. So I'm doing what I can. I'm doing what we're doing right now, which is I'm setting up Zoom interviews for people that I can. Mm -hmm. uh, but a, a number of the characters that would be involved, and I use that term as a metaphor, um, yeah. are not people who are going to be doing Zoom interviews. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, fascinating. So maybe... Maybe with this year, are you hoping we'll be able to? Yeah, as long as travel, you know, travel restrictions come up. Lift up. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good. All right. We'll hold on to that. So now let's go back because I want to wrap up with your going back to your um, bars. So I know you completed and passed. Congratulations, the California bar last summer. You Thank said you're you. taking the Washington. What's What's up with going back into <laughs> the land and taking bars again, other than just being a glutton for punishment for taking well, bars? Yeah, I'm not a glutton for punishment, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Washington, this, this California bar, um, uh, I think my daughter put it right in the um, in our Christmas letter, which she writes a very funny Christmas letter. But she said, "Dress for the job you want, not the one you have." Mm -hmm. And uh, I've I have always had my dream to end up in California. Uh, again, we'll see what happens with <laughs> where we are today. Uh, so I took the I took the California bar, thinking that I will um, go back and practice in some form or fashion, not, not in a big firm or anything, but I, you know, as you can tell, I'm fascinated by criminal law. I'll do something in criminal law, criminal justice, judicial reform and the like, uh, hopefully in California. Uh, the reason I'm, I'm now signed up to take the Washington bar this summer was that we were supposed to be climbing uh, a mountain. I'm a big avid mountain climber, uh, not, not a technical climber, I should say a trekker. It's probably mm -hmm. a better way to say it. Okay. We were supposed to do uh, the uh, Mont Blanc this summer. And uh, I don't think we're going to do that. And so I had to look at my calendar and say, what's a mountain I can climb? And, you know, I, I also don't know how long we're going to be in Seattle. You know, I just don't know. I mean, how do you sell a house now? I don't think right. you do. Right. Uh, so I'm trying, like everybody else in this environment, trying to figure out how to be productive and contribute and, um, you know, be a part of something while I can. So that's my, that's my rationale for this one. I'm not, I don't really enjoy it, but, you know, I figure yeah. it's a path. Well, and it gives you options, right? That's right. Peter, this has been super fascinating. Um, I have loved listening. You and I share the love of the backstory and your backstory is amazing. So it's, thank you for sharing that with, with everybody who will be listening here. Um, I wish you the best through this, this COVID period. And I'm very much looking forward to season three of Somebody Somewhere. So for everybody who's listening, um, that's your next podcast. If you're listening here, if you haven't already subscribed, it's totally worth your time, especially now that we all have a little extra time maybe to binge things. So it's a good time for that. 
So thank you very much for being on here with us, David. Um, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you. It's been my, the pleasure has been mine. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.